Hello and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for people who are curious about how to have a more fulfilling work life. We live in a world largely driven by numbers, logic and reason. But how we feel at work and about our work impacts us, our organisations and society. There is a relationship between the numbers of our organisations and the life beyond the numbers. I'm Susan Michrielon, your host. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't, people who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences. And it's helpful to know that there are others who think like we do, or have had struggles too, or have gone where we want to go, or can show us things we didn't know. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the human side of work life by sharing insights, stories and strategies to inspire you to let your uniqueness shine through. Well, today I am kind of beyond excitement to welcome Pete Bearder to Life Beyond the Numbers. Pete, you're so welcome. Hello, Susan. The excitement is all mine. Lovely to see you. Lovely to see you too. And the last time I met Pete was in Scotland on the Isle of Bute back in June. And my probably long abiding memory is crying from laughing. So, Mm. and and, people people have the tendency to do that when they see me. I think it was more in reaction to you rather than just seeing you. But so I wanted to actually talk about laughter and wonder, Pete, when was the last time that you laughed for the sake of it? Oh, for the sake of it, probably about a week ago, very occasionally I introduced a, a little bit of laughter practice into like a morning meditation. And I think that was the last time I did it for the pure purpose of doing it. Sometimes I keep that practice up every day. And sometimes it, it falls out of practice. And I always think when I come back to it, I'm like, why did I stop doing laughter practice as part of my morning meditation? Because it makes my day so much more buoyant and chucklesome. And as a result of it, it really does transform the way I move through the world when I do laughter meditation. And I, I, I haven't done laughter meditation, I think, but I know myself that... If I'm starting to feel a bit like kind of "Mm, what's going on here, usually laughter is the thing that I need. And I'll notice that actually I haven't laughed for a while and I'll go and seek it out somehow. And luckily at times I can bring up the last time I met you and that helps me to laugh. But, But when I was a kid in school, I had this thing that my parents could just say and it would just send me into absolute hysterics of laughter with tears flowing out of my eyes. And that lasted for years. And there's a lot to be said for how laughter just transforms our energy. Right. Uh, yes. And that's interesting. You, you picked up on, on that code. Your parents had 
primed your nervous system so that they could say a particular code word and it would send you into spasms of whatever that phrase was and you don't have to share it with us it was printed onto your deep psyche now for me it was the word poo my mum had a particular way of saying it and she picked the right moments and she would send me and my two brothers into spasmodic fits of uh, paroxysms yeah and she would say it and only ended by the age of 18 when we were all you know like drug addled, addled and depressed and angry young men probably but you know it, it, it is interesting how programmatical we can be and how we can program ourselves to laugh yeah. you can also if you do laughter for the sake of you fake it till you make it as we say in laughter yoga you can do it whilst pressing a particular part of your body yeah, if you do that if you repeat it if you repeat it if you repeat it every time you do it all you need to do is press that part of your body and it's like a button and you'll just start laughing because you associate that physical sensation with the act of laughing. That's fascinating as well, isn't it? And because I realized that I would get a bit annoyed with myself if I almost tripped up or I dropped something or spilled something. And I would have this voice and we go, oh, for God's sake, what'd you do that for? And I decided it was time to substitute that with laughter. And I did train myself. So now when I do something like that, I just burst out laughing. Ah. Great. This is brilliant. And every person I speak to has got their own route into this practice because it's, it's so new and it's so niche and yet so ancient and so, so fundamental that whoever really goes into this, as did I two and a half years ago when I discovered laughter meditation and it transformed my life. And now two years later, I'm publishing a book on that subject, etc., etc. Another friend started introducing it to his morning meditation. He would do it whilst laughing down. I'm like, great. Let me know how you get on. Send me the data. Like, Observe how this is changing your, your laughter behavior. Observe how it's changing the sonic properties of your life. Observe how it's you're changing your moods, when you're able to keep it up, when you're not able to keep it up. So everybody who does it is experimenting with a, this new, exciting healing modality, which is also ancient and fundamental part of being human. Totally. And I don't even know if I would have thought of it. That's interesting as a healing modality. It's just that I know and, and I guess you're right. That's what it's doing for me. It's healing that sense of disconnection or snapping me out of. And I don't want to really use that language, but it's helping me to come out of my head, I guess, and into my body and actually right down into the rumble. And if I can have tears with laughter, oh, my God, that's just it's like having a massage, an inside out massage. Yes, yeah, yeah. And biologically, there are scientists who've gone into what's happening with your body and you are creating a cascade of endorphins in your brain, which is causing you to be happier and more content. You're also shuddering your body into the parasympathetic rest and digest mode. Okay, so it's a tension release. And it's also a shuddersome transmission of energy. And as energetic creatures who are riding and surfing this flow of tension and release, it's a fundamental and inescapable way that we rupture and regulate ourselves and thus maintain homeostasis and optimal health. So I think the thing about the sad thing Mm. about laughter is it's greatly lacking from our day-to-day -day lives I mean if you go into a workplace laughter is one of the things that is probably frowned upon other than maybe at lunchtime or 
if the boss makes a joke and everybody feels like they have to laugh at it Uh or whatever, which isn't real laughter. And actually all of the things you were saying there about happiness and content, bringing about that change, that rest and digest Mm -hmm. opens up creativity, opens up our ability to relate to one another on a different level. So why aren't we laughing more? Good question. Yeah. I mean, if you consider we've been through a mental health epidemic, and there is an urgent need for us to pioneer new ways to create collective joy and collective ecstasy. The very things which are an antidote to a loneliness epidemic and the most individualistic and atomized societies that have ever existed in the West. Okay. We have not evolved to sit in front of screen, said the man speaking into the screen and what a, a grace it is to, have to be able to do that right now but when we do this for long periods of time it has all of these these effects which we don't need to repeat but collective ecstasy collective joy rituals of public happiness these are the antidotes i used to work as a professional street entertainer and i would tour europe doing shows hat shows as a musician and i would, I would get groups of strangers and i would orgasm them into a finale they would all be dancing and singing and chanting and clapping and cheering together there's something really really beautiful to that if you think people are going into city centers now with semtex attached to them and they're blowing themselves up or they're carrying weapons and they're doing mass shootings the complete opposite of doing that is wheeling a trolley with an amplifier and creating an explosion of, of dancing and music and good vibrations and togetherness and hitting people with that instead. And that kind of made me think, okay, well, we really, really need this. Here's a high street full of stressed people. And through these rituals of performance, we can transform a space from one of transit or commerce and anonymity, and maybe suspicion and fear and class hierarchy and difference, yeah, into one of togetherness. And we'll have um, literally a millionaire dancing next to a street homeless person and the street homeless people are always the people who start dancing first because they've got the least to lose so then you have the millionaire clapping the street homeless person who who suddenly become a celebrity because they're right in the middle of the circle dancing you've got 80 year olds next to three year olds you've got pigeons you've got dogs you've got humans boom (laughs) oh my god i can't believe you brought pigeons into that story it was going so well pete (laughs) (laughs) but it also reminds me leadership is the ability to get people to join in to follow and it reminds me of there's that video about the lone nut on the hill with the dancing guy and he brings the crowd into it and before long that spontaneity just takes over and everybody's dancing but you need the person who's willing to be vulnerable or to put themselves out there or to be the catalyst Mm -hmm. to start it and we're not very good at that kind of stuff often or not all of us are yeah i mean we're 400 years into an experiment in human consciousness as it's known the, the protestant work ethic around about 400 years ago there was a shift in the way that we started to do religion and also the way we started to use land and the enclosures and the laying the groundwork towards industrial and capitalist development. And this was a centuries long project 
of suppressing collective joy, suppressing spontaneity, creativity, and people's free time and recreational time. Now, if you look at the Reformation, for example, in England, part of that process was systematically wiping out all of the festivities from the calendar. That was a puritanical impulse, and that's the history that we have. Then we have a like, repressed, emotionally repressed Victorian society kind of grew out of that. So historically, my Britishness has given me a very somatically and emotionally repressed inheritance. And that's what I feel the people around me are dealing with. And that was the culture that gave birth to the modern work environment, the modern economy that we're all occupying. Which may feed into the reasons why we don't feel we can laugh in the workplace, because they're formal, financially driven, hierarchical environments and hierarchical environments are not comfortable with laughter because if you're in a position of authority you've got a lot to lose by laughing. Was that a deliberate project? Was that a deliberate design Peter? Was it something that just happened? Obviously you weren't there at the time but from your research? Well there's different ways of interpreting it. I mean you could say it's just a consequence of society complexifying itself and, and an accident of uh, geopolitics and environment and geography. But you could also say that it is a deliberate design by people in power to cultivate a disciplined and obedient workforce. And I think probably there's an element of truth in both of those claims, right? I mean, suppressing joy just seems like the just wrong so i guess it was everything like that was left to the home and once you're out in public then there was a conformity required to, mm. in order to be productive and seen as obedient or whatever yeah this has grown out of christianity of course so, i mean there used to be dancing anybody who's interested in the history of public joy there's a great bestseller book called dancing in the streets by barbara ehrenreich which i would recommend but in christian churches in europe there would be dancing inside the church and there was a papal edict in late medieval europe and the pope said uh-uh we're not gonna have all these rowdy mob behavior in our churches it's out of control and the franchise institution, the religious institution of the church said no more, okay? So they put in pews so people had to sit down and the carnival moved outside. And you know, in medieval Europe, the carnival would happen inside the church and you'd have people doing rituals, absurdist theatrical cabaret rituals where the vicar on certain day, one day of the year, the vicar would do mock marriage ceremonies where you could like marry a donkey inside the hall. So there would be cross-dressing and there'd be sexual luridness and all of that, right? I mean, it, it was, you know, quite a party, quite a party. So we've come a long way. The institution of the church has had to stamp out a lot. And then when you want people to become a factory workforce where they're turning up on time, it's took many centuries of changing that culture of getting from the marrying a donkey to turning up at, at 9 a.m. to do your 16 hour working day. Yeah. So yeah, so that's a little bit about the journey that we've been on. And there is a financial interest in people being lonely and depressed and not together because togetherful activities are very difficult to govern and also if people are lonely and anxious and on their own they're more likely to buy things to make themselves feel better hence the pharmaceutical industry and all, all, all this controversy around that right
you're painting a really like depressing picture for me now. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, why did we bother at all? A little bit. I think we've had to beat a cheer up. Let's talk about love. All right, the last five centuries. Oh, okay, right, right. That's okay. <laughs> and, and hopefully we're heading towards a revolution that is going to, so, at some point, a new project, new projects are emerging. There's an evolution, and maybe it's an evolution to, to revolt. But this has obviously as well played a role in the oral tradition being downgraded mm, yeah so in this last five centuries i've been talking about you've also got the the rise of literacy and that made the church very dogmatic and very scriptural and very by the book and uh, it also brought in land deeds and titles and society became very legalistic and very rigid and very scriptural and very written down yeah so that's a big feature of the making of our society is that we're a literate society and that means that we've lost the oral culture which is so rich and alive when we go to other parts of the world and we see just how social and just how verbally proficient people are if you go to places in latin america or africa or asia where they you know parts of the world where they have strong oral cultures in place you can have a debate between an, an illiterate peasant and a professor an academic professor in a western country and if you look at it from the perspective of ancient greek rhetoric in terms of the tools of performance and persuasion and the verbal proficiency that that person has to make their point the illiterate peasant will be way above and beyond the literate professor because they come from an oral culture. It's closer to that ancient fireside tradition of reciprocity and verbal participation, which is one of the things that we've lost. And passing on culture. Mm. I mean, that's, I suppose that's how we kept stuff alive for so long. Our ancestors told stories and the stories passed down from generation to generation. And I come from a nation of storytellers. And even growing up, we were still getting remnants of stories and that old storytelling way. Of course, we just thought they were like a bit crazy, the older folk mm. wanting us to sit down and listen to a 30-verse song. But that that's gone, that fireside tradition. Yeah, the Celtic oral tradition is very, very strong. And I'm not so well versed in the history of Ireland, and maybe you could tell me a few things about that. But certainly in Scotland and Wales and in Ireland as well, I mean, it was a systematic suppression of, the, of, of Celtic bardery. It was part of the imperialist project of enclosure. Once the, the enclosures of public land and space and wealth had been carried out in England, it got exported, of course, to the Celtic nations and then around the world. And part of that was attacking the poetry because the Scottish bards, which were a direct lineage from the Celtic Druids, were the memory of the tribe. They were the people that conveyed the stories that made the people that they are because your stories make you connected to the land and your history and your place and each other so if you attack the stories and they would literally flog the bards if they caught people practicing uh, as part of their educational drives or their suppression of the language and the culture they would be persecuted 
And we see this same process happening around the world, you know, with, with the plundering of resources and the effect that that has on people's language. When you say, take away people's language, you take away their peoplehood. And we're very lucky that that peoplehood, that poetic culture, has, has remained to the, as intact as it has to this day in places like Ireland, uh, because it gives a huge amount of richness, I think. In, in a way that I came from the southeast of England, that was the first part. That was the first wave, right, of theft. We're talking about these historical processes. That was where it was emanating from and still is in many ways. And English culture is not a poetic culture. When people say, what do you do? I'm a professional poet and writer. People would say, is that any, is, can you even do that? Is that even a job? And partly that says something about the financial system that we work in, but it also says that there's, within that, there's also like, hang on, is that an actual job? Is that something that you can actually dedicate your life to? That's something you should be working to. But also, what's your contribution to society right, might right. be the underlying question there. Not just, is it a job, but where's your productivity? How are you helping the economy? Right, 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 right. And, and, and uh, not, not a huge amount, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> but the thing is that it doesn't have to be that way if you look at shakespeare who was writing for the common man you could see a shakespeare play for like the price of a meal it was pop culture and people were really into metaphors and they're really into soliloquies and it was really richly written popular culture in a way that you don't get anymore so you see how far we've come since that time the common stock of linguistic linguistic capital that the average man and woman had in England was far, far beyond what it now is. And that's precisely because of four centuries, five centuries of a system which systematically suppresses creativity and art in the name of profit and efficiency and theft. I would say I want to name that because that is the system that we're living in. So where do we go from here? Well, thankfully, our species is incredibly eventful, right? And for all of this doom and gloom, every time someone is born, that, that's another opportunity for, for somebody to go, hold on, this is bullshit, let's do something about it. And within all of these processes, I think it is also really important to be, to be hopeful and to recognise the fact as much as these are man-made problems, we have the capacity to invent our way out of this. And we're now seeing a proliferation of different reactions. The laughter yoga modality that I have created and by proxy the, the nonsense yoga, these are all, this is only one of a huge family, a huge diaspora of interventions towards collective joy and ecstatic play that I'm seeing all around me. And it's a very exciting time. And because there's an urgent need for these things, these things will become increasingly more apparent. Good. And I think as well, there's a contagion to it, isn't there? I mean, that's perhaps how it will spread, because there's an emotional involvement in, well, in storytelling, in laughter, in any of that stuff. It's, it's more than just words. It's way more than just words and language. That's it. That, that's it. Because we live in a literate society, elements like laughter, which is part of the oral tradition, which is, I think is something that you've picked up on, 
disappear, that, you know, they shudder off into the ephemera of history. Like part of the research I'm doing for the book on laughter that I'm writing at the moment is looking at the forgotten history of laughter within spiritual traditions. And it goes back, it's as old as Taoism and Zen Buddhism, you know, it's old as, as we can find scriptures, you can find laughter practice within religious traditions. However, theologians, men of the pen, of institutions and hierarchical religious bodies don't like laughter and they're not going to write about it it's not part of the literary tradition not write ha 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 or you know it, it's just so that somatic shuddering which has reverberated throughout human history and throughout religious practices has been lost to the history books it's very exciting to chip away at, 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 the, at the very scant literature that exists on this subject and I think it plays back as well to what you were saying about authority, I guess. And mm. there's an element of professional means serious, means no laughter, where actually I think you bring a sense of humour into something, it can change the dynamic very, very quickly. And it can cut through stuff as well. If you know how to play the room and use those dynamics, there's there's a lot of power in that. And I don't know why we need either or. I don't know why we can't have serious and play or mm -hmm. laughter and talk. Or my go-to phrase is professional is personal. Mm, I like that. I like that phrase. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And laughter doesn't have to be about humour as well, actually. The overwhelming majority of laughter has nothing to do with funny, which is contrary to what you might expect, because you would think that most laughter comes at the end of a joke. But actually, if you start to observe laughter behaviour as it manifests, most of it is a way to begin a conversation, end a conversation. When you're like at the where, where you get tea in a workplace and then you're going to get swept up in a conversation and you don't quite know how to leave, you don't quite know how to leave and you're waiting for that moment when you can both laugh and then you, there you go. And then you both shudder and that energy is recognised and celebrated and dissipated and off you float, right? So these dissipative micro rituals are part of the everyday way that we regulate and rupture ourselves and our interactions. And when you really start to look at it, it is absolutely fascinating. We're laughing as a way of modifying a previous utterance to say that wasn't serious or, or to change the severity of what you were saying. So, for example, if I said, uh, that's a nice top, you know, I might laugh so that you knew that I, be, I wasn't being sarcastic, right? So it punctuates and it percolates and it carries along human intercourse. And because we are a rationalistic, analytical, literate society, we see the words and we see the objects and we see the propositional masculine elements of language, right? When actually the subconscious, intuitive, musical, contextual, social, holistic elements of language, such as laughter, isn't even considered part of language. However, it is the river on which language is carried, as you point out very well. Good meeting is a meeting where we're all laughing. Those dissipative rituals carrying along, making us all feel good in our belly. That's what makes you want to turn back up to another meeting with that person. That's what makes you want to work with people when you can laugh.
together because actually laughter comes from our limbic system, our primate brain, and that is the stuff that really matters and really gets remembered. And I think that says it all. I think it does. So, Pete, you're a poet. Yes, don't 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 judge me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more about the type of poetry that you do, or how did you know it could be a job? I'm not entirely sure it still is. <laughs> <laughs> I was very lucky enough to be inspired by spoken word artists back in around about 2005, and seeing people get up on stage. You know, people in in my hometown of Oxford people like Steve Larkin, people who were putting on slams. And I was going to these events, poetry slam competitions. I was going to these events and for the first time I'm going, wow, this person is, you know, doing the oral tradition in a way. I, I didn't even know what the oral tradition was, but what I was looking at was like pushing all my buttons. It was funny. It was politically outspoken in a funny, educative and clever way. And it, it was engaging me emotionally and physically. And I was being asked to stamp my feet and clap my hands and take part in these rituals of competition. And I'm like, wow, this is what I want to dedicate my life to. And it's great that this is what my last book was about, how that oral tradition has come back to life in the context of all of these issues that we've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and Pete's book that he's talking about there is called Stage Invasion, Poetry and the Spoken Word Renaissance. Mm. And it's funny, that word renaissance, it's the first line I remember learning in school, in history, when I went into secondary school. And we did our history through Irish, mm. because I went to an all-Irish school. And the line, I can still see it on my copybook. It was the first line I wrote down in that class, which was Kieline Renaissance a vre, which means Renaissance means rebirth. Mm. So is it a rebirth of poetry or is it a shift in how we, are we changing poetry? Is it evolving with us? Yeah, in some sense, it, it is a revival and you could say that there's this newness to it. But also, it, if it is a revival, it has deep, deep, sprawling roots, actually. So the oral tradition, for all of the celebration of newness, actually, you're embellishing on a very long tradition. The oral tradition is deep, fundamental part of the human experience and is hugely complex, more complex than is the written tradition. Some scholars of orality would argue it's not uncommon for a poet in an oral society to be able to recite an epic poem of the equivalent length of 13,000 lines. That takes about 10 hours. They're able to remember that, but A, because they have trained and brilliant memories, but also because they're skilled improvisers. This isn't word for word. There is no word for word. There's no written down, right? So they're, they're freestyling and they are skilled social interlocutors who are able to read the room and to music grow their narrative around a rhythmic structure for hours on end, often to a musical backing. And the harp and stringed instruments have an ancient spiraling dance of chromosomes together. 
I actually work with a harpist now, an orchestral harp, and we're going to be touring a show next year called The Garden of Madness. It's going to be me and Emmy the harp, and I'm very excited. And it's, yeah, as an Irish person yourself will know, the harp and the human voice have evolved together. They deserve to be together. And when I first jammed with Emmy the harp at the Shambhala Festival last year, I said, listen, at four o'clock, I've got a show on that stage. It would be great if you could come and do like maybe one or two songs uh, poems for me and it was so beautiful that she ended up doing the entire hour and everybody at the end of the set was just like whoa and I was just like whoa and now we're recording an album together and planning a tour next year so so that's exciting. That's really exciting and the harp is our emblem so the harp in Ireland very very deep tradition as well mm. and that's so interesting I wonder if that's how it has evolved as well in Ireland where the harp and the spoken word done together. And mm. did they form like that? I mean, there's, I would imagine there's so few harpists now, but it is a really beautiful instrument. That's so cool. Are you coming to Oxford? I will likely be coming to Oxford, yes, because I used to live there. So I've got lots of friends there. And that's where I started, you know. So that's, you know, Cowley Road and all that whole kind of stuff. That's where I used to put on cabaret nights in my 20s. And used to have, a, I remember we did one night called Drunken Poets. I was talking about this the other night. We did a night called Drunken Poets in Drag, where all the, all the poets had to be in drag and they had to be drunk before getting on stage. We did two of them. One of them was one of the best gigs I ever put on and the other one was uh, one of the most disastrous. So yeah, <laughs> an interesting experiment in poetry. <laughs> the relationship between poetry and harps is one thing. The relationship between poetry and alcohol is quite another. Well, let's formalise it. <laughs> Again, another tradition of the Irish, I think, but <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> this episode at least <laughs> but so I suppose what I think is we're we've lost out somehow by relying on the written word so much and so literally as well mm. because I think the spoken word there's a line that you wrote in your book that is really just in it's burrowed its way into my head and that's about you said you practice precision, concision, and the construction of metaphor, or mm. something like that. And oh. and I find that amazing because oh, look, I'm talking too long to get to the point, but there is something about being concise, mm. precise, and metaphors because I don't know we realize how much we use metaphors day to day. But we won't write them because in writing we become formal. Mm, mm, right, yeah. So we're living in a culture of work where we're giving most of the hours of our week and most of our vital energies to enterprises based around an ideology of efficiency. Okay, so metaphors and figurative language, the flowerfulness of language um, is suppressed in that environment. So it suppresses people's imagination if we're constantly writing things where the natural urge of language and remember like language is like all phenomena is a biological one it swirls and it eddies and it sparkles and it flowers and it goes on pointless missions and there's a strivance towards beauty as 
an emanation of one of the deep structures of the universe, creativity, imagination, the drive towards beauty and language is no different. And that's why there's all these redundancies. The oldest academic profession is rhetoric. The study of spoken figures of speech and how to use them persuasively. And the ancient Greeks, and that was still growing out of this oral culture, uh, had the art form of using the efflorescence of speech beautifully and persuasively and to use redundancies because using all these redundant but very beautiful ways of speaking and constructing a sentence or a paragraph or uh, an argument is just worth doing for its own sake just worth doing for its own sake absolutely as well as all the other reasons yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no but I think what I kept thinking about as well as I was researching this is you talk about in the book the body and how much the body is involved in spoken word and mm. and I suppose it's something again we kind of go to work from the head up don't we mm -hmm. there's like there's that emphasis on the brain and it's like the body's a taxi for the head which carries mm. the brain the yes. brain power and you can see me here. I am a demonstrative speaker. I've always been like this. I've always used my body. And I didn't actually realize that or make that connection so fully until I read it in your book. And when I'm facilitating a workshop or on top of a room, whatever it is, I come alive and all of me is in that space it's my energy my body and what what's the difference in bringing our body into it pete if you look at like people like t.s Eliot, who are kind of like high priests of the poetic canon in england these are people who very much the, the, the literary tradition is suppressed the body and it's fetishized text and if you go to a creative writing course you're told that poetry should be efficient and it should be short and it fit within the box the refrigerator of the page but actually where it really comes to life and where it really connects with people when you publish it in person is as a somatic energetic exchange and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be waving your arms around and shouting and, and singing but it means that you're recognizing speech as a performance discipline. Now, I'm not just talking about poetry because how many among us are poets anyway, right? But how many of us belong to the oral tradition? How many of us use language to persuade, to assert ourselves and to move through the world? It's absolutely inextricable. We're a language mediated species. So the subject of how we use language and the energetic exchange of language, and I'm not just talking about the acoustic blasts that are flying out of our face, I'm talking about the whole energetic exchange of your body, the electromagnetic field that you are propagating, the way that you are regulating interactions with eye contact, the, the behavior of your eyes, the behavior, the musicality, the prosody of your voice, the way that you use your voice rhythmically, musically, the way you use silence the way that you make way for other people and let other people talk, the extent to which you provoke laughter. Yeah. The extent to which you yourself laugh and elicit the laughter and permission the laugh of others.
there's no right or wrong way of doing this, but we all have our own style of doing the oral tradition. And it's massively understudied and overlooked, I think. And it's funny because what was coming up as you were speaking there, I was, and it's not really funny actually, but I was thinking about back to authority again mm. and actually the body there as a power house almost you know so a leader in an organization that hierarchy that you talked about and whether that's the church or in a company mm -hmm. you're standing on a pedestal you've been put on a pedestal you're taller than everybody else the body becomes a barrier and a weapon almost in with mm -hmm. the oral tradition because your words can frighten someone mm. yeah and there's class and power and gender, all these are encoded into the way that we use our body. I mean, there's been various studies in, into the correlation between gestures as we speak and one's class. And some studies have concluded that if you're of a place of socioeconomic elevation, you're less likely to be exuberant in your physical gestures. Um, <laughs> Right, <laughs> a little bit. You would lose gravitas. You would lose dignity. You've got more to lose by laughing. You don't see political leaders and prime ministers and presidents laughing. Why is that? It's interesting, isn't it? They're formally dressed. They're formally behaving. This is encoding itself into the very nervous system and the way it moves. So that exuberance can be seen as unpredictable and subversive, and. Yeah, like you say, the body. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with everything you said. Thank you very much. That was too easy. <laughs> <laughs> I also realised that I come from the wrong end of the socioeconomic spectrum. <laughs> I'm not polished enough and whatever, but you know, it's, it is really fascinating. See, by the way, you move your hands. <laughs> I think it's when I laugh, you can see my tonsils. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? How our culture, I keep using that phrase, it's funny, but how our culture adapts to the norms that some people, their power, I guess, power really dictates how we're going to interact with one another. And yeah, if we don't see politicians laughing, well, they are a laughing stock, though, to be fair, at the moment in this country. We don't want to see them laughing either, though, Pete, do we? We want to see them being serious and taking things seriously. Maybe we do. I mean, maybe it's a functional. Maybe how long are they going to stay prime minister if they get up and start giggling <laughs> on the podium each time? Do you know what I mean? Maybe they don't want that. Maybe it's like, come on, dude, there's some serious things we need to sort out here. Like, I mean, that's OK. I wouldn't like to say that people should necessarily be laughing all the time more. And, and, and I think although laughter is a fundamental part of, of human health, or it, or it can be, people laugh for every type, type of reason. They, people will laugh in occasions when they've just been told that a loved one has died. They will laugh when they're being cruel or evil, or where they want to exclude people, or there's pathological laughter that people do when they're mad. So it's a shuddersome physical process that happens for lots and lots of different reasons. It can be used to cultivate health, and that's why things like laughter yoga exist. What was the original point I was going to make? <laughs> what was your question? I'm sorry, so sorry. I have no idea. This one, I think <laughs> I was just saying like that we, we don't probably want to see them laughing, and I think you've probably 
answered that. I think that was where I was going. Yeah, sorry. So it's, yeah. I mean, the, the way I teach laughter yoga is not happy clappy. I'm not really down with that whole happy clappy thing. Yeah. I, it, for me, it's like we are dealing with a high octane physical process and within that laughter just below the surface is tears because to the extent to which this world is comic is the equal extent to which it is tragic and it is comic because it's tragic and it's tragic because it's comic and these two yin yang are spinning around each other and very frequently when i teach laughter yoga people as we get towards the end will start to cry and we are deliver- halfway through in my case <laughs> You were, you, were, you were laughing tears. I remember you being, it was quite wonderful. You slipped in and, and, and we'd strip back all the layers and you were laughing from a very deep and ancient place and you went into the giggles. And the giggles is an ecstatic place that is available to us on, on a daily basis where we can alter our consciousness and it can you know, have a high impact vibrational effect on the consciousness of people around us. It's a very fascinating thing, the giggles. You can completely lose control of yourself. You are literally beside yourself with laughter. You are having an ecstatic experience. And on that note, <laughs> before this descends into that, no. please, like we're out of time. Oh my, oh my that's, God. Uh, that's sad, yes. Yeah, so yeah, we'll have to come back again when the book is published. That would be good. Um, yes. If not before. Um, but Pete, introduced you as Pete Bearder, but you're also Pete the Temp. T-E-M-P, yes, that's my stage name. Yeah, I'm in transition now. I'm, I'm Pete Fluid. Yeah. Pete I'm, Fluid. I'm, I'm Pete the non-binary. Pete the Temp or Pete Bearder will do. Yeah, <laughs> I answer to both. If somebody wants to know more about you or catch a show or whatever the correct terminology is for that. What are you even doing? Is that a real <laughs> job? <laughs> How? Where can they do that? So I've got about 15 years worth of stuff on YouTube. I've got a playlist for comedy, a playlist for spoken word, playlist for music, and some activist stuff on there as well. Um, I've also got an Instagram and Facebook. You can find me if you if you search under Pete the Temp and a website as well with details of my show and tour dates when they start next spring. So yeah, be in touch. You can subscribe to my newsletter on, on my website as well and we'll tell you when we're touring around and all things like that and new releases. I send out a monthly newsletter by email with the joke of the month and the word of the month and the quote of the month. Oh, and, cool. videos, and videos that we've produced as well. So there's more of those to come very oh, soon. Brilliant. And all that's left to say is thank you for the music. Yes, the daily music of your laughter and what a song you carry into the world, Susan. Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for your tonsils. Thank you for <laughs> your enthusiasm. Big oh, love to you. It's been a pleasure, Pete, and we must do this again. Let's do it again. All the very best. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the paths we traversed on today's episode. If something rang through for you, be sure to let me know. Or maybe you can share this with someone in your life who would benefit from listening too. And if you enjoy helping others, I'd be so grateful if you would leave a review so that people who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers can discover this podcast too.